Blog Talk Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters with your host, Betty Jo Tucker, author of Confessions of a Movie Attic, right here at www.blogtalkradio.com. This is Betty Jo Tucker thanking you for tuning in to Movie Attic Headquarters. You're in for a real treat today, folks, because versatile actor James Wilder is here to discuss his new film, Three Holes and a Smoking Gun, which is a fascinating psychological thriller. You know, James is on a roll lately with his recent Best Actor Awards and an Independent Spirit Award on the, on the film festival circuit. He actually... Uh, let's, grabs the screen and never lets go. He excels as a washed-up Hollywood screenwriter in this unusual indie film. No wonder he and the movie are winning so many honors. For example, the Red Dirt International Film Festival named him Best Lead Actor, and the film also won the prestigious Grand International Film Festival, and... Uh, and it won Best Screenplay Honors at the L.A.'s Downtown Film Festival and Best U.S. Narrative Film of 2014 at the wow. Laughlin International Film Festival. And he has some other acting roles that he's, that he's done that are quite impressive. He played an ambitious lawyer in TV's Equal Justice, a drug-dealing seducer in Melrose Place, and a serial killer in the acclaimed movie Murder One. Among his additional film and TV credits are Scorchers, Perfume, Mind Games, Man of the Year, Flypaper, Nevada, and The Coriolis Effect. I think he was bitten by the showbiz bug early, because I understand that he was performing his one-man show in Paris at the age of 14. Then later he studied at New York's famous actor's studio, and appeared in Broadway's Sugar Babies, as well as with Ed Asner in the ABC Theater presentation, Cracked Up. But there's more to James than his acting. He is also a creative architect and designer, and we'll bring him on right after Nikki gives us the okay. Nikki, are all systems going in the chat room? They are, and we're just so excited to have James on. So excited. I feel the same way, Nikki, and thanks to the people who sign up for the chat as well as our other listeners, and thanks also to James for taking the time to be with us today. James, welcome to Movie Attic Headquarters. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Well, congratulations on all those uh, awards. Has, Has this been somewhat of a surprise for you? Oh, complete surprise. I mean, um... You know, it's coming out of a little bit of a sabbatical of sorts, um, acting-wise, for my own particular reasons. And uh, just coming back this way with uh, so many awards uh, directed towards, you know, uh, my work as an artist. It's overwhelming and overwhelmingly um, amazing. (laughs) Well, uh, you deserve the 
the awards that you're getting for this uh, performance. It, it is uh, terrific, and in fact, the entire movie is uh, something special. And, you know, I've recently been involved in helping with a screenplay adaptation of one of my books, and so the story in Three Holes and a Smoking Gun resonated with me, but I know that even viewers who haven't uh, had any script writing experience will be drawn into this intense drama, which we'll be talking about more in a few minutes. But I first wondered if you could tell our listeners why you decided to become an actor. You know, I never really decided to become an actor. I grew up um, in the Bay Area, San Francisco, Pacific Heights, at an all-boy parochial school. And, oh. you know, it was very structured. It's an accelerated learning institution, suits and ties and whatnot. And, um, uh, you know, that became kind of confined, and it was, um, you know, needed. You know, you have to have a good formal education. But uh, what was going on all around me in the whole San Francisco post haight ashbury area was a very, like, bohemian rhapsody is so well said, I think, by Freddie Mercury in one of his uh, songs from Queen. It was just, San Francisco was just had this whole trickle-down effect of different artists, all kinds of artists, you know, from from tie-dye to musicians to sculptors, painters, because uh, San Francisco has a little bit more of that. Um, uh, I don't, it just resonates more um, on a art field across the gamut. So in seeing that, I went down to the Fisherman's Wharf area, where I think every city has its own little you know, tourist draw. And I saw all kinds of different street performers. Uh, at that time, it was Shields and Yarnell, um, mm -hmm. Harry Anderson, uh, A. Whitney Brown, who went on to be one of the you know head writers and performers uh, at Saturday Night Live. And I was 11 years old at the time, and I was just really inspired, kind of a lonely kid, and looking for something to do. And I saw all this uh, sort of, I don't know, on a very minute level sort of adulation and validation being given to these performers um, from the surrounding audience as long as they came up with something that was entertaining enough for people to actually stop and dig into their pockets and hand over some money <laughs> without, without a weapon, so to speak. So I kind of put this little one-man show together as a fire eater and a juggler and doing um, – a unicycling and tightrope walking, and one of my very first heroes was Houdini, who I'd always kind of reveled as sort of the first international superstar because he wasn't really bound by language. Everything that he did, did was uh, completely visual, and so it kind of um, really uh, pulled in the audience into doing um, into what his show would be, whether, you know, getting handcuffs, everybody could understand it. There was no real language, you know, then he'd be hanging upside down off a building or thrown into a lake. And, <laughs> you know, it communicated at that time with whatever limited, um, you know, uh, media coverage that there is. Uh, th th he was able to do that and um, uh, become an international star so to speak. Yeah. So I always thought that was really fascinating. I kind of put a show together in that, in that capacity. 
and the, and you were 14 when you when you were uh, when you were in Paris and and doing that show that you put together in San Francisco. You took it to Paris at that young age. Yeah, well, it, by the time I was 14, I'd already been doing this the uh, you know the aforementioned street show that I did for three years. <laughs> so it was actually you know had I guess on a a New York stage, a 36-month run. You know, it was pretty tight at that time, and it was kind of, I think, really charming for people to see such a young performer um, doing this little, you know, wild street show. And uh, I got booked to go, yeah, to the Moulin Rouge in Paris by myself. My mother, being French and Parisienne, and sort of it being a gentler time in the world, as as it were, uh, it wasn't so threatening as it would sound today to let your kid at 14 go to another country. People, you know, now are afraid to let their kid go across the street, you know, without a security <laughs> card. But, you know, at this time, like I was saying, in San Francisco, it was a very bohemian uh, period of time. People were hitchhiking, you know, people were, it was a much friendlier time. The economy was much uh, more fruitful. And um, my mom, being Parisienne, and, you know, living in Europe and immigrating here to this country from Europe, uh, it was very comfortable, you know, to let her son go to Paris and, uh, you know, learn to speak French. And people always ask, what was the Moulin Rouge like? I go, it was just like the movie, except they didn't speak English. So <laughs> it was... Uh, well, what an experience for... For you, that that is just amazing. And and uh, mm. what what do you consider your big break in show business? You know, I think that's a that's a timeless question I hear um, asked to many artists. Um, and I think the one who said it the most apt was, um, I think that was my first of my one hundred lucky breaks, meaning. You know, I don't think there's very few actors, do I believe, one one project just sent them straight to the to the top, just turned their career right. around in one particular job. It happens, and we know those actors because the performance that they gave and the and the uh, media outlet, whether it be music or film or television, it's so formidable. And it so, so um, you know, uh, embeds such an impression on the whole demographic of the entertainment audience that we, we know that well. But I'd say by and large mm-hmm. for the majority of, of all artists, I think it's basically, um, you know, like building a pyramid. You know, it's, it's just it's one block at a time and it just comes up and eventually... Um, you know, you you have a body of work or one particular project in uh, uh, in encompasses and and collectively with a couple of other projects brings that attention to that actor. That's what I that's what I believe anyway. You know, I mean, the show I did with Sarah Jessica Parker, uh, we did Equal Justice and we won, you know, the Emmy, which was the top honor for a one-hour drama, which was the top award in television at that time, when there was only three networks. So right. it, was such a, it was such a narrow arena compared to how many outlets and shows that there are now. 
Um, yet nobody remembers that show. And we had every, you know, uh, uh, every imaginable amazing review and awards. But if you ask anybody, hey, tell me about the show Equal Justice. They go, I never heard of it. <laughs> so, I know. Um, I know. Yeah, I it, wonder it, if it's available it's, uh, on uh, Netflix or you can get so many things that 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 uh, that weren't available, you know, a couple of years ago. Do you know whether whether equal justice I mean, fortunately, is fortunately or unfortunately, everything is available out there, you know. Um usually things that people don't want people to see, but uh I'm <laughs> sure it is. You know, I'm, I'm sure it's available. It because it's I just that for that. whatever reason, you know, it just didn't um capture its moment you know it did with the reviewers and it did with the uh you know celebrated uh panels of um individuals in the industry that are reserved to hand out the awards and that's always nice as an actor to to feel that you've been validated by your peers uh it just didn't hit a commercial it just didn't get a commercial hit then on the other hand I did only six shows of Melrose Plays, and more yes. people have seen those six shows than I think all my other projects combined. You know, I mean, I my did a movie God. for Miramax. It was you know Murder One, and I played yes. a serial killer that was set on death row. And I flew to Reedsville State Penitentiary, and you know the New York Times. I mean, I had all you know the uh, a groundswell of great. Reviews, but but if it, if it, like uh, you know Andy Warhol and the Warholian fifteen minutes of fame, you know I, I doubt that Andy Warhol, in retrospect, would say you know I don't know if I really wanted to be remembered for a Campbell's soup can, but the <laughs> point is it's 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 pop art, so you know you're remembered for what you're remembered for, and then everything else comes into it, you know. Exactly. So, That's a good answer. Yeah. Well, I noticed you didn't mention uh, Sugar Babies, as the, and I'm the world's most avid musical fan, so I have to ask you about what you did in the Sugar Babies musical. Well, Sugar Babies um, was the exiting point of my one-man show. So ah. it started when I was 11 in the streets, and then it moved to cabaret, you know, in Paris and Vienna and uh, all different places in the world as a cabaret show. And then it, I migrated at about 17 years old down to Los Angeles, and I was uh, living in a custom van down in Santa Monica uh, uh, parking lot, basically, and doing my street show in Venice Beach performing at the Greek theater at different times or the whiskey and the Roxy. And then, um, I got into, uh, sugar babies, which was, um, a fantastic vaudevillian or burlesque revival show with, you know, the legendary and late great, uh, Mickey Rooney and Dan Miller. And, oh. um, that was just, you know, that was, that was, for me, especially being a kid with the sort of hero worship for Houdini and whatnot, to go into these theaters, like the Fox Theater, I seem to remember, 
I don't remember which city that was, but to go into this theater and just have your breath be completely taken away with the um, just the sheer time and patience and detail that was put into this structure that was designed in exactly that way, kind of like a church. You know, when people go to a church, the ceilings are very high. You want to have the idea that it communicates to your congregation that God is big, you know? So right. the church has extremely high ceiling lines. It's really odd because as a comedian, when you go play a comedy room, the ceilings are very low. And you say, mm-hmm. why are the ceilings so low here? Because it's good for comedy. And the reason why is that laughter is contagious. And so if yeah. the ceiling's high, when someone laughs, it gets lost. If the ceilings are low, it reflects that sound all through the room. And then one person laughs, and it's infectious. Other people start laughing. So we used to always say, when you go into a great theater, like, let's say, the Fox Theater, you're going, wow, beautiful room, really bad for comedy. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I think that's what inspired me to later become an architect, seeing those places, because when you're a... When you're when you're a young person and you're a little lost in your way and you're looking to be inspired and find things to do for yourself, you know you have a lot of time on your hands and um, to come into a structure like that, uh, which is designed for entertainment and to take your breath away. You well, uh, Sugar it, Babies it, it, did at least have some some influence. On you in, yeah. in that regard, and of course, I oh, I, I would have loved to have seen Mickey Rooney and Ann Miller in in that uh, particular production. And were you in the chorus or? No, no, no. I had my own like twelve minutes to myself. Yay! Uh, with that one man show, yeah, no, it was a featured spot that was fantastic. Uh, of course, Yay. I can't I can't dance to save my life, but um, <laughs> yeah, no, it was it was. It was a really cool. Um, uh, it, it was just a really cool experience because it was so different. It's like where do you go with a, a vaudeville show, so to speak? Oh you know, there's a certain gosh. place where you kind of hit hit the top in the 21st century, so to speak. Like where do you go now as a fire eating comedy well, juggler? I mean, there's got to be a limit. <laughs> I think Sugar is Baby that on YouTube? Limit. I would love to see your. You know it is actually. It, is uh, it? It is. A, a, somebody put it up, and we kind of put it onto my website. I think my I just put a website up uh, to show you oh, how good. What is? Time step in. How do we get to? Uh, how do we get to your website? I think it's jameswilderactor.com, and I think That's there's simple. A, yeah, and there's a YouTube there of me. Um, what has now become a thing that people all know about. I'm the one that actually created that, which was juggling three running chainsaws. Oh, my God. And that's actually, that's actually there. You know, I'm like 20 years old with a really big, full, thick head of hair. <laughs> um, well, juggling after running the... chainsaws on that YouTube site. <laughs> After the after this show, that's the first thing I'm going to do. Going over to your yeah. website, JamesWilderActor.com. Is it? A, it is a .com, right? Yeah, it is a .com. And I'm going to 
check you out doing that 12 minutes. I can hardly wait to see that. Well, Oh, it's not the whole 12-minute show. It's just a little slice of it. But it is juggling the running chainsaws and a couple other And it is bit. juggling the running chainsaws. Yeah. <laughs> and you survived. Yeah. So thank heavens. Yeah. And that you might be a clip the- from Sugar Babies. I don't know. I don't know, I don't know where that clip came from. Somebody found oh, my thank goodness, you for wait. Can I just say something yes. right quick? Your hair Please in do, that video. Nikki. No, your right. hair, James, in that video is so amazing. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> like, wow. what a, you really have to go to his website. It's the best, you guys. JamesWilderActor.com. Oh. Yeah, it is. We You're will so definitely. handsome. <laughs> But, but yeah, he is. It definitely he is. Yep. There's no doubt about, about that. Still, I mean, <laughs> yeah. So, well, so I'm so I'm I'm definitely going to check that out, and we're encouraging all our listeners to to do that. You know, there's so many things to talk with you about, but we promised everybody that we would talk about three holes in a smoking gun. So let's turn now to that. Uh, Topic because um, I, as I mentioned to you, I was so impressed with your with your performance and I the character that you play, James, just blew me away. Bobby Blue Day. I love the name of Bobby Blue Day. Could you tell our listeners something about that character and how you happened to choose the uh, this movie uh, to be involved with? Um, I've said it before, so I'll repeat it again at the, uh, uh, what, how do I say this? Let, let me, uh, to avoid being redundant, let me repeat myself. <laughs> so, um, Good one. And uh, the story basically was I was at a bar named Hemingway's after the late, great writer Ernest Hemingway, and some yeah. stranger tapped me on the shoulder, and I turned around, and I said, can I help you? He says, yes, I'm a writer. And I said, Okay. Uh, how can I help you? They said, well, I have a script that I'd like you to read. And I said, what's it about? He said, "Uh, it's about a writer. I said, I'm in a bar named after a writer, and a writer is handing me a script about a writer. I said, okay, where's Ashton Kutcher? You guys are trying to punk me. I'm not that stupid. (laughs) Um, But it it wasn't. And uh, he gave me the script. I read it. It was extremely challenging, and I had taken a bit of a break as an actor, which I can tell you about later. And I thought, you know what? Here's something that's really extremely challenging, and I've always felt that, you know, your imagination are the previews to your life's coming attractions. And mm-hmm. um, I, this particular project was kind of so uh, ripe for an actor to really excel or completely fall on your face. And when you're juggling chainsaws, it's the same thing. You know, you're either (laughs) you learn to do it perfectly or you just don't do it at all. And you put it away and say, you know what, the chainsaw idea is a really stupid idea. But you know what? I'm glad I tried it because, you know, I realize it's it's not something I'm going to be able to accomplish this lifetime. So this uh, role very much... um, captured me that way and uh we we you know uh tackled this particular project in you know back east uh in a brutal brutal winter with a very very small crew and much like not comparing it to this film but you know like Birdman and Whiplash with a very aggressive short filming schedule of like 19 or 20 days and oh. uh the 
Yeah, the director. You know, in this this piece, I also not to compare it with the incredible talent of uh, Sam Shepard, you know, Pulitzer Prize winner. But it, when I read it, every actor, and if there's actors listening, they'll relate to this. You know, one of the very first things you do as an actor in acting class is uh, a piece or a play called True West. And, oh, uh, yes. The, the Quaid brothers made that famous. Um, and it's just a great character play between two brothers that – eventually end up in complete diametrical opposition to each other and it starts with the you know the two real men out on the outskirts uh close to las vegas with you know the coyotes and wildlife and these two brothers end up in such a a, a desperate clutch that they end up going you know from loving each other to killing each other uh you know metaphorically speaking and um mm-hmm. I, it was just a great piece that when I read this, it was really like a two-character piece. And I thought, this could be incredibly boring for audiences, like the great film My Dinner with Andre. You either loved that or you hated it because it was just yeah. too slow and, and took too much time. But it depends. You know, it's like somebody that says that you could give them the best glass of, of uh, Opus One uh, wine, which is which is red, and if someone doesn't like red wine, it just doesn't matter. You can give them a cheap glass of Chardonnay, and they say, "This is what I, you know, prefer." So it's the same thing in entertainment. Some people really love psychological thrillers. Some people really like slow-moving, character-developed uh, storylines, and some people really want action. You know, and some want, uh, you know, sex and violence. So. Um, for myself, I decided that this is this is just too good a piece to turn away, and I decided to come back and you know and do it. And I'm so glad that I did. Oh, I'm glad that you did. And um, th- this whole idea of of a film that shows the lengths someone, not just one person, but that people will go to for a great screenplay. I just absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that that really resonated with me, and your um, the scenes with you and the uh, and the actor that plays the student that uh, mm-hmm. has uh, that has turned in what you, what Bobby Blue Day says uh, is the the best screenplay ever written and and once once part of it the the scenes I see what you you mean when you're talking about that other the the Sam Shepard play. Those are are great scenes. This battle of wits that the two of you have, and your and your character just shines through in terms of uh, you know what he's trying to do. I mean, you're not just sure of it, but as as the as the movie goes on and the discussion goes on, you just you know get right in there with with Bobby Blue Day as to what he's what he's trying to what he's trying to do. But what was did you do anything special? to prepare for the role? That's a very good question. Um, And what's interesting is when you, as an actor, and if there's any actors out there, they'll relate to this too. The auditioning process is hell. I don't think so few, there are some, (laughs) there are some actors that I'm sure love uh, the auditioning process. But by and large, it's such a, uh, rejection-driven 
mm, process because you know it's uh, basically as the French say, uh, une banane pour un mille songe, which means it's a reference to acting. One banana for a thousand monkeys. <laughs> so you know <laughs> when you're going after a role, there's other very talented, very similar looking types you know, in the room and you are, you know, it's going from a process of roughly probably 200 and then it gets down to a handful and then one person is selected. And um, irregardless of what anybody says, since it is a, a collective entity, no matter what, you were not the first choice. <laughs> the first uh. choice was Leo DiCaprio, but it just doesn't, have that budget. So, you know, it's 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 very interesting. It's it's not like marriage where, you know, one mate chooses one mate and that's it. It's a collective panel decision. So, yes. you know, seven of the people or producers or directors or writers, you know, in this collective group wanted so and so and the other so, you know, and you can feel that as the actor because as you're taking this project on, it's on your shoulders. You know, the mm-hmm. the this movie, had I not delivered, would have just fallen apart, and everybody knows that because um, yeah. it's it's a do or die for me. So if I am not prepared, like I guess you know, uh, like an athlete, you know, or uh, to to you know, if the quarterback comes onto the field and is having a bad day, everybody, you know. Everybody loses, you know, everyone, the, the, even the fans that bought the ticket to the game. So you have a huge responsibility. So back to what you're saying in a circuitous fashion, which I have a tendency to uh, meander, but it comes to filling the entire point. That Well, it's interesting meandering. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you're preparing, and, and this is what it is, when you first get this amazing role, you are so elated you're just walking you know a foot off the ground in excitement oh yeah and then slowly but surely over a 72-hour process the (laughs) responsibility of having to do this role starts to seep into your consciousness into where it practically puts you six feet under and you go oh my god i have to do this thing and I have to be great in this thing. It's not, you know, this is this is this is not an e-ticket at Disneyland. I mean, this is the real deal, uh, and you have to deliver. So there's this uh, tremendous mm, rattling of your your spiritual cage, I would say, as an artist, uh, which is a big wake-up call to start um, just grabbing at air. You know, like like a painter's palette to say you're trying colors, you know, in in your imagination for this character to see how, how is this going to work, you know. And of course, there are painters like Miro that deal with their primary colors. They always paint in primary blue, primary yellow, primary red. And as an actor yourself, you have your tricks. You know, you have your characters that people have seen you do in different clothes, with a different haircut, maybe with a mustache, maybe without. But, you know, you, you've got that in your, your trick bag that you can do. And you don't want to inject that into the performance just because it's um, 
uh, a knee-jerk reaction. You know, it's, you, you want to say, wait a minute, let me, let me look at the whole picture here and remove my little handbag of acting tricks and say what would be really great here. And this character, <clears throat> there was just a whole lot of different ways that you could go and have it be right. And in an odd way, there was almost no way that you could go and be wrong because he was a fractured uh-huh. character that had already had the success. So as long I felt as the audience could see that this was a man that had had success and relished in that success, um, the thing I wanted to really try to convey is where you could see his pain, his pain of mm-hmm. could, if he could do this all over again, he would have done it in a completely different way, you know, and embraced the experience instead of uh, become uh, egotistical and, and, and uh, arrogant and, and push people away. Because a lot of times that's what fame and fortune can do. In my own small way, I, I've realized at times when they say it's lonely at the top that your friends, which are very happy for you, you imagine right now, you know, I'm getting Best Actor in New York City, Best Actor... Uh, the Red Dirt, uh, the Independent Spirit Award. Uh, I'm on my way to go to Buffalo uh, to pick up uh, in recognition of dramatic excellence. My friends, of which we all say that we have friends that we could count on one hand, um, when it was three months ago, you know, what are you doing? I go, oh, you know, I'm going to clean out the garage. I don't know, what are you doing today? Oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm going to get the motorcycle running. You know, now when I say, oh, yeah, I'm flying out here to pick up the Independent Spirit Award, <laughs> your friends, and, and, and you know what I mean, especially males, life by comparison, you have a tendency to compare your life against how other people's lives are going, just like, you know, when they say, you know, the, the Joneses next door. You know, what does their house look like, your next-door neighbor, and you're in competition with the Joneses. And friends get in competition, and when you have a lot of uh, success coming in, uh, you know, it gets uh, people stop. You know, they either they don't want to bother you, or they're happy for you, but you know, they you, you kind of end up being alone. It's just a, it's an odd oh. anomaly that way. Um, so, it's an interesting, um, uh, it's an interesting misnomer how fame and fortune, and this is coming back to the character, is such an mm-hmm. incredible thing to have. And this character had that. He was, you know, a very celebrated writer, and he was, you know, debonair and handsome in his own right, and had Hollywood, which I've always called the sort of American monarchy system, even though we're not on one, but we do have our kings and queens that, you know, when Angeline Jolie all of a sudden has black hair and she becomes the Clara Bow in retrospect it girl, uh, everybody goes, every girl has you know, dark hair. As soon as some of the actresses were having babies, you know, in their early 20s. But everybody, every girl is now getting pregnant and having babies, you know what I mean? Because not that we're like lemmings, but, you know, we do, uh, human beings are sort of like pack animals in the way that they they imitate, you know? They imitate um, uh, whatever the leader of that pack is doing. And so uh, this guy just blew it for himself, being Bobby Blue Day, and, you know, um, found himself lonely when he had success and then found himself even more lonely when he had upset 
the group around him that made him successful. So he had to figure out a way, and he migrates to New York to open a writing class and figures in his own clever, calculated, self-serving way by opening a writing class, he would be able to then have these writers that he's teaching in his class use their pen name on his scripts and then submit them into the Hollywood machinery and have those scripts get made because his name, Bobby Blue Day now at this point, is just poison, you know. Um, uh, so that's sort of that was sort of the, uh, you know, the direction of the character. Well, it it is a, a memorable. You have created a, a memorable character. The Bobby Blue Day will remember it, and and I I think that uh, there must have been a, a lot of uh, work, even though in a, a short period of time, and uh, you carried a lot on your shoulders. I can tell that by how you're talking about the movie. But uh, there must be some things that you enjoyed about making the film. Uh, what did you enjoy the most? I think what I I think what I enjoyed the most for myself is that I've never looked at my life and the um time that I wanted to spend here on this big blue marble as trying to be a famous celebrated actor per se. I think because I grew up I I do I'm a big believer in product of environment and the environment that I was in as I said, San Francisco had um, so much art and at the time that I was there, just running through its veins. And so I just figured myself always as an artist before Prince had labeled that as sort of uh, you know, a singular term. But you know, just someone that looks at does art imitate life or does life imitate art, the eternal question, I guess, the... Uh, you know, the chicken and the egg. And everything, to me, I wanted to put some sort of cool little brand into. And coming back with that movie, I I didn't feel, as an artist, um, that I've ever put myself into a position where I had to take a job as an actor to pay my bills. And so many actors have to do that. So having that one-man street show, uh, which later be just, just became a live stage show, I always had that to go back to, and it gave me a lot of pleasure. As a matter of fact, when I saw the YouTube, when she was joking about that, what looks like a big wig on my head because I had so much hair at that time, um, <laughs> I thought, wow, I look so happy uh, with what I'm doing here with this show. And at that time, if you were to ask me, you know, what do you want to do? And I'm, I think I'm 19 years old. There maybe 20, and I, you know, and I said I don't know, but I don't want to become known as being a chainsaw juggler for the rest of my life. You know, <laughs> people are saying, have you ever thought of being an actor? And I thought, ah, you know, I don't really like actors, uh, only because of what very few actors have done is has made the the uh, label of an actor seem like a very um, downtrodden, arrogant, spoiled brat type person. So I thought, no, I don't want to be an actor. you know. And then lo and behold, I become an actor. But um, through 
the one-man street show and through what later became, you know, some architecture and acting, it, it enabled me to be able to take projects through passion as opposed to, um, you know, uh, financial. Right. And you, yeah, and, you know, and so it. that that gave you uh, <laughs> that that was definitely enjoyable to you. And I can't believe that the time has gone by so fast. They're, you're just so articulate and and interesting to to talk with. I wish that we had more time, but I want to make sure that uh, our listeners know when uh, they might uh, be able to get a chance to see. Uh, three holes in a smoking gun. Is it going to be released on DVD, or is it going to be oh, released? Oh, it's got a theatrical uh, have a th- release. Yeah, uh, yeah th- it theatrical, has a theatrical release. release. And uh, it's it's theatrical release is March 27th. Um, I'm in Los Angeles, so for me, it's at uh, the Lemley Music Hall, which is the most beautiful theater, uh, in, in my opinion. It's you know, it's it has an art house. Um, Limited theatrical release, which is, you know, the kind of movie that it is, which is really cool. So So uh, March 27th uh, 27th on that. And what about DVD? Anything, um, any date on that yet? I believe they they do that in conjunction with it. I think they, it's a blast at the same, right around the same time. So it goes on demand or VOD or DVD or something with a D. Okay. <laughs> well, day. I'm getting the three three minute signal here, and I just I can't I I just can't believe that that much time has has gone by. And I I want to thank you so much, uh, James, for being a, a terrific guest today. And um, I have to give a big shout out to the folks at Blog Talk Radio for their support, and special thanks to Nikki for everything she does for Movie Attic Headquarters, and uh, to all our listeners. I also want to remind listeners to uh, check out Nancy Lombardo's Comedy Concepts show, uh, hosted by one of the most hilarious uh, hosts that you'll ever hear, right on Blog Talk Radio every Monday and Friday morning at 10.30 Eastern Time. And I also would uh, advise people to go over to Dreamstream Radio to hear uh, Mr. Showbiz himself, George Bettinger, on the Mom and Pop Shop radio show. And that's Monday and Wednesday and Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And please, listeners, don't forget all the diverse shows on the Wacko Network here on Blog Talk Radio. There's something for everybody in the Wacko wheelhouse. Well, I think it's time now to wrap things up. And um, this is in honor of James Wilder's performance in Sugar Babies. And we're calling on the great Lucille Ball to perform her famous burlesque number from Dance Girl Dance. And James, I think you're gonna you're gonna love this. I love to present to you in her daring novel specialty, Manhattan's Tiger Lily White. <laughs> Give them all you got, baby. They couldn't take it.
a goody goody, just a baby in the woody. Love has got me worried and perplexed. Oh yeah. Gosh, oh gee, I want my mama. Goodness me, I need my mama. Maybe she could tell me what comes next. I'll tell ya. My mother told me there'd be days like this when I wouldn't know what to do. She told me what not to do. She said some boy would take me in his arms and tell me, oh, what lies. But did mother realize the boy would be you? <laughs> or you? She means me. No, not you. Oh, me, you? me. It's a date, honey. <laughs> or you? What about you buddy? <laughs> <laughs> My mother told me, better count to ten. Then if that doesn't do the trick, start counting again. I counted up to ten a thousand times, but I kissed him anyhow. Oh, mother, tell me, what do I do now? days like this, when the wind would begin to blow, and I wouldn't know where to go. She said the night would be so cold and dark, and I'd be all alone, and every dream I own would blow away. told me, baby, you keep warm, keep your little self bundled up when you're caught in a storm. She told me just exactly what to do, but didn't tell me how. 